Cleared en route, episode 5. Charlie Golf, Alpha Bravo Charlie, radar service is terminated. Squawk 1200, you are cleared en route. everyone and welcome to Cleared En Route, the Canadian Aviation and Space Exploration Podcast. I'm Danny Vicar and joining me as always is Chris. Hey Danny, how's it going? Ah, it's going very well. Just uh, studying for some midterms here. Yeah, you've been pretty busy lately. Radio silence for the most part. Yeah, unfortunately school's kind of starting to kick my butt again. So uh, for those uh, of our listeners that don't know, I'm uh, back in school even though I graduated in June. I like the pain. Um, just doing a master's now in uh, electrical and computer engineering, and oh boy, I tell you, that's a lot <laughs> different than undergrad. Yep, life of a grad student. There's a lot of free time, but there's free time between classes for a reason. They expect you to do work, a lot of work in it. So, yeah, yeah. Oh well, we've got a great episode coming up. Uh, lots of great news. There's another satellite coming back down to Earth. There is a solar-powered hybrid aircraft designed right here in uh, southern Ontario, in Toronto, actually. Some issues at Pearson Airport and Air Canada. They're on strike. They're not. They well, are. It, they're not. They yeah. Are. They are? Are they? No, they're not. Who yeah, knows? whether you can call it a strike or not or, or whatever, it's it's very confusing. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, right now they're protesting, not striking. So. Yep, and then we have uh, an interview with a representative of Viking Air, and we'll talk a little bit about a Canadian uh, bush planes, the history of bush planes and bush flying in this uh, great country of ours, Canada. And we'll close off with some listener mail. Excellent, sounds good. Yeah, as, uh, as most Canadians who live in the cities don't realize, uh, most of Canada actually looks like lakes, mountains, bushes, and that requires some special planes, so... We'll be talking a bit about about those. Excellent. Let's jump right in. So, looking through our news here, it seems a massive German satellite will fall to Earth this week. Now, why is this satellite massive? Well, I, I think that's... Uh particular descriptive word they use to make their story slightly more exciting. If you want to know specifically, the satellite weighs 2.4 metric tons. So whether you consider that massive or, or not, I'll leave that up to you. But uh, I guess they've considered that very massive, yes. Um, but but you're right. What What's happening here is a, a German satellite will fall to Earth this week. It's expected to come down on uh, the 22nd or 23rd of October. This is ROSAT, the Roetgen. That's uh, German. My German's horrible. But um, the satellite built in Germany, and, and it, as I mentioned, weighs 2.4 tons. It's, it's going to reenter. Its mission has been complete. And they're expecting that about 1.7 uh, of that, uh, 1.7 tons of that mass will actually make you know, contact with the Earth. And that your odds of being hit and my odds of being hit are about 1 in 2,000, which is slightly higher than the 1 in 3,500 odds that we faced when URs fell back to Earth. 
Um, but, you know, as with before, it's it's probably going to hit the ocean somewhere and, and none of us should worry. But, you know, for, for those who are watching, most of the world does fall within the path. The re-entry corridor is between 53 degrees of latitude north and south. So pretty much everything but, you know, the tops and bottom of the world are, are going to be in the, the, the path. And we'll know exactly where the, the longitude is about two hours before it comes down and, and as the telemetry comes in. That's cool. Uh, it'll cover a lot of uh, a lot of the world when it's coming down. Right? I remember for the last one, my mom asked me, well, you know, they, they warned us it'll be coming down, but they said anywhere from Argentina to basically Canada. So that's that's a huge area. I guess it's, it's just mind-boggling how, how fast and how far these things travel. Oh, for sure. But, but, I mean, at this point, you have to really consider it's still in orbit. And because of variation in, variations in the atmosphere, you know, as the, the sun heats it and cools it, it expands and contracts like any other gas would. So sometimes the atmosphere thickness at a certain altitude is, is slightly more dense or slightly less dense than it, it usually is. So that provides a, a margin of error in all of these estimates as to when or where it's going to come down. And that's why they can't tell us specifically until about two hours when... It's right in the thick of the atmosphere, and there's really no way for it to do anything but crash into the ground. So, you know, that's that's why it's such an expansive area right now is it's effectively still in orbit and still swinging by our heads every 90 uh, to 100 minutes. But as that orbit decays, it'll it'll start to narrow down the the latitudes or the longitudes. Sorry. Awesome. Is there a uh, now? Um, was it URs that came down? In September, yeah. yeah, they there was a, a a Twitter account for that. Is there one for uh, Rosat? There is. Um, I forget exactly now. I can I can put it in the show notes. But just like you are, uh, I expect there'll probably be a pretty solid Twitter following. And and as we reach that you know reentry moment, actually you know the, the, they want you to go on Twitter. They want you to talk about it. They want people to be out observing, looking for it. One one of the things is you know we we're tracking these things. But it's still a very kind of tenuous sort of tracking. It, it relies a lot on watching it kind of pass a gate, watching it pass a particular radar station, and then determining through mathematics what the tracking should be, and then watching at the next gate to see how close you were, and then adjusting your tracking and continuing that process. So as it you know goes past a gate and decays its orbit, you can't really account for the math because of those margins of error. So that's why there's, you know, with URs, we saw a, a debate. Did it hit? Did it not hit? Where did it hit? And it wasn't until about a day later that they verified, yeah, it, you know, came down somewhere in the Pacific. So certainly, you know, Twitter, there's a, a lot to follow there, a lot of excitement and, and you know, potential to keep your eyes open and, and see it come down if you're in the right area. Well, that, that's excellent. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, so we'll put that in the show notes there and everyone can tweet along. Yeah, so that's uh, about uh, a week and a half from now on the 22nd. Actually, yep. next week. Yeah, 22nd, 23rd. Yep, upcoming weekend here. Yeah. All right, excellent. Gives me something to do this weekend. <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> actually, yeah. Actually, I'll, I'll be away at a, uh, <laughs> at a little bit of a conference type thing, but yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I see here a Toronto startup designed solar-powered aircraft. So apparently a Toronto company has uh, designed this aircraft that is solar-powered and a hybrid. Yeah, it's think of a, an airship, a blimp, but it's also got forward propulsion and, and a lifting body designed to the blimp. It's not just a cylinder. It's flatter and, and more triangular looking. 
And this provides lift both through the act of helium and, and being lighter than air, and as well from the forward motion. So with this, you can create a craft that you know it, it can carry a bit more than a blimp because of that additional lift, more than, than the lighter than air component would allow you. And it can travel slower and, and slightly far on less fuel because not all of the lift has to be provided by the propulsion system. So what they've done is put solar on top and electric engines, which in theory, as long as you maintain the pressure in the airbag and, and as long as you know the sun is out and it's not too cloudy, um, could fly for quite, quite a while, you know? That's awesome. It sounds very similar to those airships we were talking about a few episodes ago that they're planning on using in... Uh in the, the northern areas of Canada, up in northwestern territories and such. Very similar. On a, on a smaller scale at this point, they, they do have a few models, but the one that they're looking at creating right now is, is going to travel 1,000 kilometers and carry 1,000 kilograms of payload. So their, their main applications are things like mining or, um, in particular, disaster recovery. Be, because of the light weight of the aircraft and, and the slow velocity, it's particularly good at landing in places where there's no infrastructure, there's no runway, you know, a disaster and in the, the infrastructure has been destroyed. This kind of aircraft could bring in medicine or, or other emergency supplies where others just simply can't. Do they have any uh, plans on or any dates on when they're going to be uh, releasing it or doing test flights or anything like that when we can see it? <laughs> Well, there's no demonstrations that you or I could see right now. They're looking to take a test flight of it in, in 2012 or 2013, somewhere in Africa. And, and that's actually one of their primary markets that they're looking to get into is, is areas of uh, Africa where there's just no infrastructure to begin with and, and a great deal of need for uh, efficient ways to carry medical supplies, refrigerated medical supplies, and, and get them anywhere at a particular time. Awesome. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Most definitely. If you want to take a look, their their website is solarship.com, and we can put that in the show notes as well. So Pearson Airport had some uh, issues the past month or so. That's uh, CYYZ, Charlie Yankee, Yankee Zulu. Apparently, their security personnel decided to work to rule. We have an article here from The Star. Security protest causes chaos at Pearson. Basically what happened, there was a... Labor, some sort of a labor dispute between the security staff and the management of security staff for Garda Security, which is contracted by the Canadian Air Transport Safety Authority. I think that's what CATSA stands for. Um, and there was just uh, huge delays for passengers going through Pearson. There was lines that usually take only 15, 20 minutes that were taking hours and hours. So it was uh, quite difficult for passengers to get through Pearson, but it seems it's all resolved now. Yeah, I mean, you heard stories of, of, I mean, people just literally missing flights, eight hours to get through security, 10 hours to get through security. Um, international flights were missed. The the attending staff at airlines, whether it was WestJet or Canada or anybody else, were, you know, kind of patrolling the security lines and, you know, pulling people out and, and you know, prioritizing them in line. And, and the people I talked to said that or, or that work at airlines that I talked to said, yeah, we were doing that as well. And, and we had to look for people who may have to take off in 15, 20 minutes and, and put them to the front. And while the security folks weren't necessarily happy with that, that's, that was the response of, of some of the airline staff, you know? Yeah, at least the, at least the airlines uh, took some initiative here. They could have just uh, sat back and uh, 
said, well, it's not our problem. It's security. You've got to go through it. Well, I think, I think by sitting back, it would have quickly become their problem once, uh, you know, they have to start switching that many flights en masse. I, I imagine the logistics of changing that many flights on the front lines with, you know, people up in arms would just be chaos, you know? Yeah, well, glad to see that it's resolved. Um, I never quite understood the whole work to rule thing. It's like you're supposed to be doing your job anyway. And now you're doing it, and you're doing it slower, so... For sure. And, I mean, it's, it's you know, whatever their, their methods were, I'm not too sure. And, and what was at issue here was uh, a particular change in management whereby on the off-hour shifts, they would, they would ask employees to bid for the shifts, and the employee who bid for the lowest hourly wage would, you know, get that particular shift. Um, and I guess that was just too much for the, the workers to, to go with. Now, of course, they, they are private workers, so they can't strike as the flight attendant ones, uh, flight attendants would. So their only option was the work to rule, I guess. So eventually management stepped in. Uh, they suspended some employees and, and also sent people home on, on a daily basis if they were seen to slow down the security checkpoints. And eventually that, that did resolve it. So on the other side of the security lines, it seems Air Canada flight attendants are in a position to strike again. But they're not. But they may be. But what's going on here? Okay, so what's going on here? I mean, th- this is the never-ending saga at this point, and, and of course, don't expect it to be over at this point either. It is it is just beginning or in mid-battle or, or who knows. But basically what happens is... Air Canada has unionized staff, not the same union for every category of worker. That's why you had some flight attendants going on strike, or you can have the check-in staff who went on strike uh, earlier in the year. But basically, the the employees aren't happy. Um, Their union had come to a particular agreement with management after the last uh, issue, and then the union members voted to reject that agreement. That was back um, in September when we mentioned that uh, yeah, the, the first strike incident. was averted, but apparently not. <laughs> yeah, the first incident. In, in this case, it, it's interesting. There, there was the second vote where the union leadership had tentatively agreed with the management, but it was actually the members who then rejected it. So the, it actually caused a bit of discord within the union itself in a way because the, there was a dispute about whether or not to accept it. But anyways, with, with the flight attendants not accepting it, um, they decided to go on strike as of the 13th at 12.01 a.m. And at that point, the Minister of Labor, Lisa Raitt, indicated that the government would enact legislation, as she had indicated in, in the previous situation. But it was Thanksgiving. So there was no way for the government to pass new legislation. They, they were on recess. And government Thanksgiving lasts the whole week after Thanksgiving. So while most of us were back at work um, Monday or Tuesday, the government got the rest of the week. They came back to work the Monday or Tuesday afterwards. Um, In the meantime, Lisa Raitt, the the minister, had forwarded it to the Canada Industrial Relations Board. This is a board that that deals with disputes in in, in labor relations. And specifically, she referred to them to say... If they strike, what is the impact on, on public health and safety? What could happen if, if the airlines go on strike? What, you know, what's, what's it do to the public? And that effectively blocks the strike until the investigation is complete. So that will take a few weeks to go through the investigation and, and assess the facts. And in the meantime, 
parliament's back in place and ready to pass any new legislation. Hmm. I see. But uh, that process is still going on right now uh, because I think the uh, flight attendants are currently uh, protesting this move. Uh, it's not uh, their issue is not out of the hands of the industrial relations board yet. Yeah. Well, that's what's happening today. I mean, uh, they've gone to Winnipeg, or, or they're already in Winnipeg, I guess. And on the 17th of October, they, they went and they started protesting. Now, this isn't a strike. This is on their own time, you know, a, a typical protest. The other flight attendants are still working. But what they're protesting at this point is the government intervention into the mechanics of their negotiation with their, their managers. And what they're saying is that the intervention by the government is – you know, at best inappropriate and has stacked the deck against the union in any future negotiations so that the management no longer has to negotiate. They can simply state their case and wait for the government to back them up. And at worst is is a violation of labor rights that are that are held within this country. So certainly that's you know, don't expect this to be over soon. As as long as the government and the management and the employees are still duking this out, um Potential threats of strikes, uh, you know, back to work legislation. It's it's all on the table right now. Yeah, and there's been some some news of uh, a, a gunman appearing outside of uh, an Air Canada executive's office or um, house, rather, I guess. Um, yeah, a, a brief report the the day after the um, affair was was forwarded to the relation board. Um, there, there was a man who was arrested outside of his neighborhood. He did have a gun in his car, and, and it wasn't too clear in most reports, but he had made mention to the labor dispute while being arrested or, or something like that. Um, but, yeah, a brief flare-up like that. And, it, you know, that's, that's the reason that strikes are protected legally in this country, and, and that's actually, if you think about it, the, the purpose of a strike is to have a controlled release valve for stress like that. And, and if you look at the history of it in this country, that you know there have been a lot of violent labor movements in the past, um, and, and that's where the labor laws came from. So, you know, and, and that's the thing with with them protesting now, it could continue to get very interesting here. Yeah, it'll be interesting once it's out of the hands of the industrial relations board to see if uh, if they're going to go ahead and strike or if the government actually steps in or what's going to happen there. Well, exactly, and, and whether. You know, Air Canada is necessary for public health and safety. You know, certainly there there are other airlines, and and like before, WestJet and Porter have offered to open up new routes. Um, in terms of you know their own flights, Air Canada is part of Star Alliance, and international flights and and whatnot are often run by the different airlines, anyways. And and same with the regional. You know, even if it's a, a jazz flight, a lot of those are actually contracted out to to regionals flying as as Air Canada. So it, it it's an interesting debate. Is it a necessary service or is it just another airline within Canada? And, and I'm sure you'll find people on both sides. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on this one. Hopefully not try to book any flights in the next uh, few weeks. Certainly if you if you are booking, at least you know pay close attention to this. There, there, there were a lot of people who had booked and when the threat of a strike loomed on Thursday, they, they rushed to the internet to vent their anger about that. So definitely keep an eye on it if you're planning on traveling and, and take it into consideration in your plans. So one final news piece here on Cleared en Route. The Canadian Air and Space Museum in Downsview, still fighting not to be evicted in five months, 
Um, they're still looking for support via their online petition. Currently is 1,200 signatures. Uh, I think it was 1,270 when I checked earlier today. But we'll put the link to that in our show notes. Um, and as well, you know, check out the information on our site or go to their site linked through ours um, and find out how you can help them do this and, and tell all your friends about the petition. You know, they're looking for 10,000 signatures and they've had it up for a month. They're about 10% of the way there. So keep going, guys. So our show season is over now. Uh, not very many upcoming events to talk about. There is a student UAV competition put on by the Unmanned Systems Canada. Uh, you can find them at unmannedsystems.ca, and uh, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, but basically the competition takes place in May 2012, and you can register a team online before January 12, 2012, and you'll be able to participate. Now, we will be talking about this competition a little bit in a little bit more depth um, in one of our future episodes dealing with UAVs. So in this episode, we're focusing on bush planes and bush flying in Canada. One of the, I'd say, quintessential aircraft in bush flying, or used for bush flying, rather, is the DHC-2 Beaver. This aircraft is still being serviced and manufactured by Viking Air out in British Columbia. Chris actually had the chance to speak with one of their product support managers, and here's that interview now. Today on Beard on Route, we're speaking with the product support manager at Viking Air Limited in Sydney, British Columbia. Viking is a longtime service provider for aircraft built by de Havilland Canada, and in 2005 they purchased the rights for all DHC aircraft, except for the Dash 8 from Bombardier. Uh, since then, they've transformed their organization from a service company to encompass aircraft production. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Edward. My pleasure. Um, can you tell us a bit about the history of Viking and uh, how you guys got started out there? Well, Viking started back in the early 1970s, and we were primarily a maintenance, repair, and overhaul uh, organization. And uh, we specialized in uh, in aircraft that were common to the coast, so particularly the Grumman flying boats. That was a big part of what we were doing. We were doing a lot of modification work with those and, of course, ongoing repair. And uh, and we also got involved with the Havilland aircraft, being that there's so many out here in this region. That's excellent. So it, was, it wasn't always to have on aircraft. You serviced other aircraft as well in, in the start? Yeah, well, certainly we looked after Grumman. Uh, you know, Cessna is also uh, fairly uh, common out here uh, on the West Coast and, and within the uh, Pacific region. So we've been involved in that as well. But our primary focus has always been on, on de Havilland aircraft. Is it at this point, do you service other craft or is it all de Havilland at this point? Um, well, certainly through our manufacturing business, of course, it's all de Havilland, and then through our maintenance, repair, and overhaul business, uh, we do a little bit of other work, but it's, uh, the vast majority is all de Havilland aircraft. That's excellent. So how did Viking make the decision to go from service provider to actually produce the aircraft? Well, we took over the type certificates in 2006, and certainly, uh, you know, when we did that, we took a good solid look at the business and, and wanted to look for what potentials existed not only did we have the current fleet that was flying uh, to support there's about 1,400 of those aircraft, we had to make sure that we met their needs from a spheres perspective and technical support and those types of things. But we also wanted to look at what was what was going on out there in the industry and, and uh, what what could we what could we do with the type certificates that we had. And so it was only 
inevitable that we would end up doing a marketing survey that would uh, would come back and tell us whether or not there was potential in becoming an aircraft manufacturer. And I guess that, that survey was undertaken, and the answer was, let's go for it. Yeah, it came back with a, a resounding yes uh, on the Twin Otter particularly, and uh, it showed that over the next 10 years there was a good, solid market out there for that aircraft, and so that's why we chose to pursue that. Oh, that's excellent. Um, so you did, did you look at producing your own design at the same time you did that survey? Was, was that a comparison, or was it pick up the type certificates or continue service were the options? No, I think it's, you know, they call it paper airplanes when you essentially, you know, you start with a piece of white paper and you say, okay, this is what I want this airplane to do. And, and uh, there's, there's a phenomenal amount of work and cost that has to be invested if you're going to go from the paper stage to uh, to an aircraft that's actually certified flying and selling. And, and at that time, it wasn't our expertise. And, and we, we didn't really need to go down that route. The, the Twin Otter is uh, a very famous aircraft. It's very widely known. It's, it's incredibly incredibly common to anybody who's in that type of an industry. And uh, so there was no need to go back and, and do something from scratch. The Twin Otter was, was showing itself to be the aircraft that needed to be brought back into production. There was a strong, healthy market for it. And so we decided to pursue that avenue instead. Oh, excellent. So once you decided to take on the certificates, um, at, at that point, what challenges did you face? You know, were there, were there well, obstacles? We- well, certainly, as obstacles, you know, aviation is is an, a very dynamic and interesting industry, and there's a lot involved in getting an aircraft to, produced and to market. Uh, you know, of course, there's regulation and there's certification requirements, so all those things have to be considered and looked after. Um, I think probably the biggest challenge from a Viking perspective was, you know, basically the aircraft design was there. There were some improvements that we were going to make, but uh, we had to go from a company that was relatively small. It was is producing piece parts. So now we're going to be a company that's going to take all of those piece parts, uh, manufacture a whole pile in addition, or a number of additional parts. And we're not just making spare parts anymore. We're making everything for the aircraft from from tip to tail. And then we had to uh, become a company that makes parts into a company that makes aircraft. And that that's a phenomenal transition. It's a lot of new staff. It's a lot of new systems. A lot of new processes. New facilities. All of those things have to be kept in balance, and everything has to work together for, for an aircraft to come off the line. I, I was going to ask about that as well. I've you know, worked in, in management, done some organizational stuff, and, and presumably, as you mentioned, that the organization grows um, in a situation like that. Has, has that growth been a, a rewarding experience, and, and have the growing pains been worth it for Viking? Oh, I think the excitement that you'll find amongst the employees in Viking is palpable. I mean, you, you can feel it. People often talk about the, the spirit that existed in De Havilland back in the day uh, when they were producing aircraft. That there was a, there was a, there's a feeling, there was a, a uh, you know, an enthusiasm in the air about the work that they were doing, and, that, and that's being repeated again here at Viking. You know, the Viking, the Twin Otter is such an iconic aircraft. It, it's robust, it's versatile, it's so well known around the world that, you know. Here we are now, we're producing it again, and everybody is, is, is excited about that. They're thrilled to be a part of it. We've had people leave, uh, you know, other occupations even, just to come and be a part of, of the new Twin Otter production line. So absolutely, that that's, enthusiasm ripples throughout everybody in the company. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing to hear. Um, actually, I ran into someone the other day who, who was an original mechanic on the de Havilland in the plant here in Downsview. And so I'm, we're looking forward to talking to him as well. Um, he said working on those was, was rewarding. Um, so now that you're producing them, ha- have you upgraded the aircraft at all, or, or what have you changed in these newer models? Well, I, mean, I think you know the Twin Otter 
the 400 series is, I mean, from a structural and from an aerodynamics perspective, is the same as the 300 series. It's not, it's not a, it's not a different airplane in that aspect. But the biggest difference is that we made about 800 design changes to the airplane overall, and that was just to, you know, make it, um, you know, to improve the ability for maintenance, to put more modern components in it. But one of the biggest changes was the, the avionics system that's now installed in the aircraft, and that brings the you know, uh, a glass cockpit to the airplane. It, uh, it's a very, very modern system. It's very robust. It brings a lot of safety improvements to the aircraft from, from a piloting perspective as well. So that was definitely, without a doubt, the, the biggest change that we put into the aircraft. So, so same robustness, just a little smarter for the, the pilot there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the airplane is, is as strong as it ever was. It, it's been an incredible aircraft since it first rolled off the production line in 1965. It's very hard to to improve on something like that. To have them did an incredible job engineering and designing the airplane. They really got it right the first time. So, yeah, the, really the biggest change is up front for the two pilots. Um, it allows them to be busy uh, doing their job. The Twin Otter works in very rugged environments and uh, re- really demands a lot of attention from the pilot. And so now with the new cockpit system, it, it allows him to do his job and give him the vital uh, information he needs from the aircraft and the aircraft systems um, in a, in a modern, efficient, effective way that, that just is unparalleled in, in so far what this one has had to date. Yeah, I've, I've been reading about a, a medical emergency down at the South Pole right now and, and keep hearing about how basically the Otter is one of the few, if not the only aircraft that that's going to be able to help out there. I, I think they've got a flight going in sometime soon with an Otter. Um, what do you think makes those so resilient? What do, what do you think it is about that design? It, you know... The word "design" is the key word there. Uh, it's the way the aircraft is built. It's uh, it's a very robust. It's a very very strong aircraft. It's, uh, you know the way the uh, just the way the aircraft is designed. It's incredibly versatile. It can it can fly on floats. It can fly on skis. It can fly on regular tires. It can fly on on tundra tires for soft ground environments. It's a stole aircraft, so it can land and take off in a very short amount of distance. It's uh, it's a very forgiving aircraft for the pilots. Um, lots of there's lots of cargo space inside, or, or you can convert it from cargo to passenger. There's so many things that you can do with the airplane. You can, you can fly it in an icing environment, for example, uh, with IFR rules. You can fly it VFR on floats. There's so many things that the Twin Otter can do. So, you know, when there is an emergency, when there is a necessity to send an airplane into a very, very rugged environment, the Twin Otter oftentimes fits the bill. Yeah, most excellent. Um, do, you, do you know of any kind of unconventional or, or unusual uses that it's been used for? I mean, obviously it's built to be tough, but what are some of the, the stranger things you've heard of? Well, I, certainly the Twin Otter has done many, many things. There was uh, a rescue uh, in, the, uh, in the Antarctic uh, a number of years ago uh, for a doctor that was uh, quite famous, and so the Twin Otter was able to get down there and be able to medevac her out. That certainly was... Uh, not an unconventional use of the Twin Otter, but certainly one that, that caught the attention of the world. Um, it does a lot of different things. Uh, it's involved in geophysical work in the Antarctic, so it's, uh, it's you know out there uh, looking at uh, looking at the ice and looking at Antarctica and, and studying that, studying that with regards to global warming. But I think probably one of the one of the most unusual things it does is that in the Antarctic it, it uh, transports dog sled teams from one location to another. So. Oh. Not an intended design purpose, but certainly one that Twin Otter can do without any problem. With with the dogs and all in the in the aircraft, dogs and all. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, no, that's fantastic. Never heard of that one. Um, so on on your site, you mentioned obviously the Otter, the the Turbo Beaver, and those. 
um, the DHC-7s. Now, one of, one of my favorite is the, the Buffalo. Do you still provide support for the, the Arctic Sun West tours, Buffalo as well? Yeah, we do. Certainly, the Buffalo is uh, is a very impressive airplane. There's no doubt about that. It, its capabilities are, are are very similar to the Twin Otter, only on a much bigger scale. Um, so, uh, yes, we still do support the Buffalo. There's uh, a number of militaries that are still operating it as well. Of course, uh, Arctic uh, Arctic Sun West as well, and they're they're doing uh, very well with the airplane. Um, we we use a company called Field Aviation, and they actually manufacture all of the the piece parts for us. Uh, for the Buffalo, so we're still actively supporting that program, definitely. That's excellent. Any any intentions on upgrading the Buffaloes at any point? Is there any future production for those, or just service until until those ones retire? Well, the marketing survey uh, back in 2006 that we conducted did indicate that there was a market for the Buffalo, uh, but right now we've got uh, you know we've got our our people and our resources tied up in the Twin Otter program. It's very important that we get that uh, that program. Uh, up and running very, very smoothly and working efficiently so we can use that as a model to, to take on to any other aircraft types that we, we would look at. And certainly the Buffalo is is, uh, is on the list to have a look at and see if that's something we can bring back into production. That's excellent. So so where do you find the biggest market for the de Havilland aircraft, or for the Otter is right now? Well, it's really a worldwide market, and I think that's you know what's interesting with the Twin Otter. In, in fact, almost all de Havilland aircraft, for that matter, is that they're working airplanes. They're out there uh, every day earning a living. So wherever you find, uh, you know, operators that need to operate in, in rugged environments and uh, and oftentimes with very little infrastructure, you're going to find to have an aircraft not very far away. And uh, that's really what we find with the Twin Otter as well. So you know, developing countries, a lot of a lot of um, growth in the market internationally um, with tourism and with uh, exploration and those types of things. We really see the Twin Otter being utilized there. So not just uh, an aircraft of the past, but one with a very bright future as well. Yeah, and I think that's what's so, you know, so different about the Twin Otter is that it has been around a long time. It's been around since 1965, and and uh, you know that's that's a long time ago. And yet the airplane is is almost ageless from that aspect. And certainly, you know, it's still doing the work that it was designed to do. It's uh, it's doing it all over the world, and there's no end in sight so far as uh, uses for the Twin Otter are concerned. That sounds good. Uh, one one final question here, just asking about uh, um, final model. You know, the the DHC sevens as well are are still in use for some regional uh, airlines around the world. Um, any any plans of looking at that one? Have you surveyed uh, the case for that? We did survey the case for that, and uh, you know there was uh, there was a good response from the from the aspect that current operators said, "Yes, we love the airplane, and we're going to stick with it," but not a lot of interest in new. The Dash 8 really was the, it came along, and it, it really, that's why the Dash 7 production line ended, was because the Dash 8 came along, and that's really servicing that market. The, the Dash 7 is a unique airplane in the sense that it's a 50-seat stole commuter, and there's, there are very few, if no other, 50-seat stole commuters like the, like the Dash 7, but it's, it services a very niche market. And while that niche market is very stable, in the sense that they're not going to go on to use other aircraft anytime soon, there's not a lot of room for expansion, I don't think, in that market. So we're going to work hard and uh, ardently, as we have been, to support the Dash 7, but I don't see any potential for a return to production. Have Have the current operators done any avionic upgrades like the, the Otters have seen, or are they still flying basically, you know, just maintained old stock? Well, no, some Dash 7 operators certainly are upgrading the cockpit. That's, uh, that's one thing with modern avionics now is that the, the abilities and... and uh, you know the 
the information that it can lend the pilot at a very quick glance, you know, compared with some of the older systems, is certainly, you know, one of the new uh, ways of, of the technological age. And so some operators definitely are, are doing some upgrading there. Well, that's great. That's great to hear. Good to hear they'll have a nice long life. All right. Well, that concludes our, our questions for today. Um, again, thank you for taking the time to be on Cleared en route and, and talking to us about these great aircraft. My pleasure. Well, that that was a that was a great interview, Chris. Well, thank you. That was that was actually my first interview um, for the show. Little little bit nervous, but I I got through it. And well, there you go. Your first solo. Yeah. If I was there, I'd throw a bucket of water on you. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Ruin everything. Um, no, great interview. And and I mean, those planes just such uh, amazing aircraft. Such great history. Um, as I mentioned in the in the interview, I, I did meet someone whose uncle or grandfather had worked on those aircraft before, um, and, and offered to make the introduction. So I'm, I'm going to be following up on that. Just w- would love to know more about these aircraft. You know? Yeah, that's great, and uh, we're about to learn more about them now, aren't we? Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of research into into bush flying Canada. It's, it's extremely interesting, you know. Uh, a country like this, it a, a lot of it was opened up after aviation was invented there. There was just no way to get places other than small boats before. But but once we had airplanes, you could start going out to these communities, start developing them. So tremendously important in, in the Canadian context. Um, let's get right into it here. Canada's vast wilderness and relatively low population density mean that huge portions of the country remain unsettled. Very literally, most of the country is brushland, which freezes over for half of each year. With the advent of powered flight, destinations previously unreasonable were now up for exploration and settlement. In many northern communities, aviation is the primary mode of transportation, not just for occasions like business or vacation. This episode of Clear on Roots, History of Canadian Aviation, we're going to take a look at the segment of flying which is near and dear to many Canadian aviators, bush flying. The beginnings of bush flight in Canada came in the year 1919 when a Quebec group acquired surplus Curtis HS-2L flying boats from the American Air Force, even though the boats were located in Nova Scotia, but we'll get to that in a minute. The St. Maurice Fire Protective Association used the planes to deliver firefighters and supplies to combat summer forest fires. They also performed recon on fire hotspots, helping direct efforts on the ground. This early application quickly showed the potential of aircraft in spotting and fighting fires. The idea of using aircraft for tasks relating to forest management was the brainchild of American engineer Elwood Wilson. In 1907, Wilson was appointed as the chief forestry engineer for Laurentide Paper Mill Co. In his role, Wilson's responsibility was to oversee the management of the company's forested lands. Now, although Wilson worked for the paper mill during a time not known for corporate stewardship, he was an early adopter and proponent of forest conservation techniques. I guess he realized that a 